Welcome back to the Bitcoin Layer. I'm Nick Batia with Joe Consorti, and today we are bringing back Andy Constant of Damped Spring Macro Research. Andy, thank you so much for coming back on the Bitcoin Layer. Sure, Nick. Glad to see you. Also, hello, Joe. So last year, Andy, when you came on, you told our audience that we are in for not just higher for longer, but higherer for longerer. And uh, uh, one of the first times we had heard that phrase, and you know, you were spot on here in that you believed that four and a half to five percent Fed funds was pretty much a lock. The market was telling us that um, at that point. So bring us now uh, to this year. You, I saw you still believe in higher for longer, but that a little bit of a pause is starting to enter your lingo now. So now reset for the audience. How do you see? the policy rate and the economy here, uh, and as well, if you can fold in just your views on the senior loan officer survey and other things that have been happening in, in terms of the data. Sure. So uh, let's start with uh, my outlook for the economy, which I think is um, mixed. You know, there's positives and negatives, and uh, but the things that I think are the most important, which are the drivers of um, wages and liquidity, are still strong. And um, so I guess to put that in the context of the higher or for longer idea is that what matters is not picking the terminal rate, but determining whether the market has got the uh, path correct. And I think they haven't. Um, now they could be correct, but Right now, there are 200 basis points or so expected to be cut over the next, call it, six quarters. And that certainly could happen, but it would require a fairly meaningful change in the economy um, that I think is uh, too pessimistic to uh, be betting on right now. So my view has always been that the Fed path is going to be to a higher terminal rate and then before cuts are done, a long pause. And so over the last, you know, we've hiked, I think the last, since we last spoke, they've hiked uh, at least 75 basis points. I don't remember exactly when, what meeting we were before, but at least 75 basis points. Um, and, um, you know, they're getting there, uh, but the market just absolutely does not believe that the Fed will pause. And so I still remain that, the most likely outcome is higher or for longer. So I, I have a quick question here before we dive into regionals. Um, and it, it's to do with what you just said in that the market is sort of pricing in almost, uh, you know, 200 basis points worth of cuts. We, we've seen this basically, you know, Fed funds futures have been incorrect the entire, the entirety of the cycle, right? They've been, they've basically said, all right, the Fed is, you know, 50 basis points more and then they're done. And then they keep pushing it out, pushing it up, pushing it out. And uh, basically, you know, uh, the, the futures market, the betting market on where Fed funds is going to be, they usually only ever correct uh, a few weeks out from the next meeting. Uh, and, you know, that's that's really the, the only signal you can derive. I, I sense a bit of a shift, however, because off the back of this last meeting, not only is Fed fund futures uh, pricing in exclusively uh, a pause, it's no, no longer pricing in the probability of any further hikes, but usually you see this big shift in you know what the what the market thinks fed funds is going to be right after the meeting and then in the days following like by friday it's basically fully normalized right the curve is back to normal but now we're at the following tuesday and the curve hasn't shifted much they're still pricing in uh, you know se several hundred basis points of cuts which i might not necessarily agree with right we talked about that you know the fed really only cuts if something catastrophic uh, were to happen in the economy um, but it's still uh, expecting uh, a rate pause. So I, I suppose two questions. As the man who did coin the the phrase "higher for longer," are we now entering the longerer portion of you know the, the sort of Fed's the, the Fed's hiking campaign, where we have an extended pause at terminal? And you know, if the Fed only cuts when something catastrophic in the economy happens, uh, what do you think the market is witnessing that's making it price in several hundred basis points worth of cuts? So that's interesting. It could be we could be entering the longer phase, but it also is possible that we're still going higher. Um, and that's not my central case, frankly. Um, but the to the second point, the higher the longer idea 
means that is I think is driven by two things. One is that uh, this cycle is extremely different than the last 40 years in that uh, over the last 40 years, inflation has never been over 5% for a year over year period. And we had something that was close to 10% in this cycle. In addition, this cycle is, uh, we're seeing strong employment. Um, The unemployment rate is still quite low. Uh, There's some debate on which direction it's going. And I would expect it to unemployment to start um, increasing, but so far it hasn't. Um, So I think the cycle is very different in that way. And then I think the most important part is that uh, the monetary stimulus, well, sorry, the fiscal stimulus that came from the um, COVID uh, spending by the government uh, is still sloshing around the system in the form of the large bank reserves and the large uh, reverse repo program. And that money has the potential of igniting financial asset rallies, or which would then generate wealth effect, or goods and services purchases. Um, and so to me, that seems like a tinderbox of potential support for inflation, which will keep inflation longer, um, higher for a long time. Um, now, of course, the Fed is doing what it's trying to do to offset that pressure, and they've hiked 500 basis points, and that's a lot. And they've done QT, which hasn't really been particularly effective. Um, And they've only sold about, call it $750 billion of their balance sheet, little less. Um, And that really hasn't had any effect on employment. Um, So Credit is going to be an issue. Um, the credit contraction that the Fed is now paying attention to in in light of the bank failures, but frankly, had been going on before the bank failures, um, you know, should slow the economy. But so far, the economy has been um, unresponsive. And so, you add that up and say, why are why what what is the um, what are the interest rate markets uh, missing and I think there's something to the idea that everyone that's been that's been in markets, um, including me, um, started their career uh, before um, after 1982, um, and has never seen a time when the uh, Fed doesn't respond with rapid cuts in interest rates when there's a crisis, and I think that. Um, that habit is worth betting on if you, you know, 40 years is a long time where every time before it has worked. And so I think there's some of that going on. Um, At the same time, um, there's also this bimodal idea in that we could be at a pause at five to 6% for the next two years. And that's a potential outcome. And then there's the alternative outcome. And the alternative outcome would be um, you could, conjecture that it's going to get so bad, there's going to be a recession that's so bad and politics will play in and all the various things that people use to describe this narrative, including the last 40 years of history, is that the Fed will uh, cut rates to zero again. And then if you take the average of five and a half and five and a half and zero, and you look at two-year Fed funds rates, um, it's right in the middle. And so people are saying it's a 50-50 bet that there'll be a two-year pause or a relatively rapid cut to zero. Now, I don't think it's 50-50. And so I think the market has got it really, really wrong. But at the same time, you know, it's a big market. People should, you know, there's real money being bet on this. And then that brings me to the next idea, which is um, if there is a 50% chance that there's a financial crisis that drives um, the Fed to cut um, 500 basis points in less than two years, uh, equities are mispriced. There's just no way that equities can survive at a 19 PE with um, earnings expectations growing, based on earnings expectations growing 10% a year consistently for the next two to three years. Something's got to give on that. And the idea is that in such a bad circumstance, it would be earnings. 
Um, and so I don't believe both markets are pricing the same thing. In fact, I think they're pricing very different odds of each outcome. And the only outcome that can achieve the pricing in the markets is a fairly rapid soft landing, meaning they land this plane in Q3 and we'd see no recession. We see no, um, we see inflation disappear and earnings. So earnings are relatively supported. And yet, uh, because they hiked so rapidly, they feel that the terminal rate belongs at where markets are pricing it, which is a couple of hundred basis points of cuts. That outcome means that all assets can win, but man, is that unlikely. Very interesting. You mentioned QT and how QT hasn't really affected the employment market yet, but has QT contributed to what we have seen in banks? Are we in a regional bank crisis? And But please you know, focus on QT and what is your outlook on the Fed's balance sheet unwind and how it's affecting liquidity? Well, I mean, there's two factual things to deal with with QT. One is uh, the size of Treasury bond um, QT has been going according to plan. And whether it's achieved its goal or not is another question we'll come back to. But the other outcome is the roll off of their uh, mortgage portfolio, which has been uh, woefully lower than their initial plan. Remember, they made the plan for the QT schedule that was announced and has been executed back in March of 2022, a little over a year ago. And at that point in time, interest rates were still zero on Fed funds. That They might have hiked 25 basis points at that particular meeting, taking Fed funds to 25 basis points, 25 to 50. Sorry about the phone. Um, the, um, the Fed funds um, increase really was perceived to be late. And what had happened is that um, more while this was happening, mortgage uh, interest rates rose, long-term interest rates rose because there was an expectation that the Fed had been is be- was behind the curve and inflation prints had been coming in at you know close to 10%. And so long-term bonds uh, increased in yield significantly way ahead of the QT, but around the same time of the announcement. And so what does that mean for mortgages? When they announced the mortgage plan, there was a possibility that some of these mortgages would run off because they were uh, refinanced. And you know, homeowners mo- would move, homeowners would uh, have financial incentive to refinance. And so there was a what's called a fast duration speed uh, um, for mortgages, uh, prepayment speed for mortgages um, that made it fairly reasonable that the $35 billion runoff was going to happen. And it hasn't. And the reason why it hasn't is because, one, um, homeowners are not moving because they're um, for a variety of reasons. And two, the financial incentive simply does not exist anymore for um, uh, anyone to refinance by many orders of magnitude. And so what happened is that the runoff has been very, very slow. And instead of doing what they had targeted about 300 billion of mortgages, they've only done, call it 130. And so that QT effect has really been absent in the market. Um, And I think it's very important to understand uh, how QT works QT works by uh, pushing into the market uh, risk that the private sector has to absorb. And for that, they have to get compensated by an increased expected return on that risk. And certainly in the first half of 2022, before QT even started, in fact, while QE was still going, um, as soon as the mention of QT was occurred, which some of us noticed uh, in the December 21 um, Fed meeting, but others, everyone noticed in the Jan 3rd, 2022 minutes, um, front running of quantitative tightening drove assets down to the, their lows in by June of 2022. And then QT began. And it's been spotty since then. Right now, asset prices are in very good shape. If you owned a sort of diversified, you know, broadly diversified portfolio on 
December 31st, 2021, right now you're almost, you know, you're down about seven or 8% without, without the positive carry of dividends and interests. Um, so you're actually not in bad shape, which is exactly the opposite of the goal of QT, which is to hit, hit the wealth effect. So I think it's failing right now, and I think they need to do more. Um, and then the question is, will they? Fantastic. In the vein of that, I want to ask a little bit about what the Fed is doing here, what the what the pass through of QT has been, and I, I suppose the pass through of the Fed's entire hiking campaign. So th- there's a chart that I have been enthralled by. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it is basically uh, large bank reserves and small bank reserves. And it's basically just the bank reserves divided by the total asset banks, uh, asset bases of these mm-hmm. two cohorts of banks, large and small banks. And when the Fed has undergone its, its last two QT campaigns, for small banks, bank reserves have only been able to go down to 6% of that the small bank's total assets before the Fed had to intervene again. Um, during the Fed's last QT campaign, uh, the 6% mark uh, for small bank bank reserves was hit. And then obviously the repo crisis occurred and the Fed started doing intervention again. And then this time, uh, it was pretty rapid QT for small banks. Obviously, they have uh, larger total, uh, smaller total asset bases. And once again, bank reserves weren't able to get down below that 6% mark um, uh, relative to the total asset bases before the Fed had to intervene again. Uh, large banks, it's a different story, right? Large banks have uh, many more reserves on their books. And so with the absolute number that the Fed is hiking, doesn't impact them as much. But it seems like um, this, this mark uh, of bank reserves, particularly for small banks, has been really critical. It's sort of been their constraint level. And with the Fed continuing to roll up at the pace that they are, that constraint level is going to hit get hit uh, many, many more times uh, over the next several weeks and months. And we've, we've already seen three bank failures. So it seems that right. the removal from bank reserves is impacting regionals particularly, but it hasn't necessarily flown through to uh, the, the real economy yet, I suppose. And I guess this also uh, has to do with the Fed's uh, other tools with interest rates. Um, business interest expenses have not risen to where they uh, have risen to in previous cycles when the Fed raises Fed funds. So the Fed's tightening campaign is impacting regionals, um, but it's not necessarily flowing through into the real economy just yet. And hence why you still see the labor market so robust. So I suppose the question is, is the trade-off here, right? In order to return to 2% inflation, um, between 2% inflation, getting it back to, down to that normalized target uh, in regional banks, right? Because businesses were able to push out their maturity wall, lock in a much lower uh, interest rate. And so they're really unaffected by the Fed's tightening thus far, but it's really hurting uh, banks and particularly the small banks. So is the trade-off here just by the nature of this cycle between normalizing inflation and uh, regional banks? And if so, does the lion's share of that blame uh, for the failure of these banks go to the risk managers at the banks or the Fed? Yeah. So um I'm going to turn that question into what's going on with the regional banks, because I don't think it has anything to do with reserves. Um, a very simple thing is happening to regional banks, some regional banks, by the way, just very few. Um, now, there are other things that are happening to the banking sector, which I'll come back to. But the banking um, failures had to do with uh, very a very simple thing. Uh, long-term interest rates went up rapidly. When long-term interest rates go up, the value of the assets that a bank holds goes down. And when the value of the assets are less than the uh, deposits, we'll keep it simple, the deposits, it's actually the liabilities and the shareholders' equity, but let's just say it's the deposits, the bank fails. And that's what happened. So that's all that happened. So let's just be clear of what happened. Um, That's why the banks that have failed have failed. Now, who is to blame? Well, other banks didn't fail. And so other banks navigated the other medium-sized, medium and small banks navigated the um, change in long-term interest rates better than these three guys. Now, from what I read from uh, the the, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, they were the most reckless by an order of magnitude, maybe two versus everyone else, in that they had virtually no insured deposits to rely on and uh, took significant risk-free credit risk, but heavy 
long-term bond risk. And they did that by buying MBS, which are government-backed, and long-term treasury bonds, which are long-term treasury bonds. And those went down in value. So now let's step back. Why did long-term bonds go down in value? Well, it isn't because the Fed was raising interest rates. In fact, most of the fall in long-term on long-term bonds happened before July when the Fed made its first big hike. Um, and so the banks were screwed, sorry, were um, screwed by at that point, and they were to blame. So then I think it's, so that's the whole story of the existing banking crisis. Now, there are other risks that banks have, and I think this brings up the idea of deposits leaving banks because of alternatives to um, to essentially the zero they're being paid. Um, and that does have an implication to banks' cost of funding. So starting with, they could raise their interest rates. And if they did, they might retain their deposits. Being at a bank is convenient for most people. Um, certainly if you have an insured bank account, it's convenient for you to be there, um, because that's where you transact all your finances. If you're a small business, try, you know, try banking off of uh, a mutual fund, uh, a money market mutual fund platform. They're better than they were, but they're still not what a bank is. And so there's a convenience yield that banks accrue to themselves, um, by, but nonetheless, they're under pressure. And so the question is, how fast does that pressure manifest itself? And um, how do banks actual, how do bank deposits actually work? And I wrote a video on it, which we can tag to this video later about how bank deposits work, but there's no way a bank deposit that seeks an alternative um, investment like a money market mutual fund or T-bills, which are the, the normal way that people who are getting zero at a bank decide to get more by buying a money market mutual fund or a T-bill. Both of those, um, the way the deposit system works is both of those purchases, which destroys the deposit at the bank, fund something which ends up driving a deposit back into the banking system. So Higher interest rates don't cause a destruction of deposits in the aggregate sense for the overall banking system. Um, so to me, that is a ongoing headwind, not a fatal bank failure reason. And so the Fed is and is intending to make deposits attractive to people. And the interests that are paid on those deposits, unattractive to banks to have to pay, because the reason why they are increasing in short-term interest rates is because if you have a choice between 5% return on your cash and spending, you might actually think before you, you know, buy that next anything, asset or consumption. And um, if you want to borrow, you know, short term, um, it's expensive to borrow short term to finance your lifestyle. And so I think they're achieving that goal. And if you then say, are they trying to hurt bank profitability? Absolutely. That is their goal. That by making banks uh, more cautious about levering up because of the high cost of deposits, that slows down the economy and um, achieves the goal of tightening. The Bitcoin layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin Hardware Wallet, the Bitcoin Hardware Wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. 
Look no further, this is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the BitcoinLayer.com slash foundation to get yours today. Now, on with the video. And I know Joe wants to hop in here with a question about the debt ceiling and the current dynamic in bills. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about your outlook on the economy heading throughout the rest of the year. Because what you're saying right now is the economy is, in, is on solid footing and that we haven't really seen uh, the economy be damaged too much by the bank failures or the overall hiking cycle itself. It's kind of hanging on. But we see the recent senior loan officer survey showing lower demand for credit, lower availability, and higher costs. And we're also seeing subcomponents of confidence surveys like the uh, NFIB small business optimism. We see the headline number falling to cycle lows. We see some of the subcomponents in terms of uh, confidence to start new business projects falling. So talk to us about Q3, Q4. Are we going to see that contraction in the economy? Are we going to see a recession sometime in the next six to 12 months in your opinion? Yeah. So to answer your question on where's the economy going, I think um, let's start with the important thing. My view is that a modest to medium to potentially even severe recession is um, required to slow the economy in a way in which inflation will not reignite when the um, foot is taken off the brake by the Fed. So now it's a question of timing, and I would probably be on the, um, certainly not in the next um, six months, but, but certainly likely in 2024, um, and certain by eventually. Um, so yeah, I'm not rosy-eyed thinking that the economy is going to weather through this without any sort of recession. I think it's... Um, not desired, but required. And so now it's a matter of timing. And I think what I would say is that I'm, um, um, I think it happens later than the market does. And um, I think that's the answer to that question. It, it's a phenomenal answer. And I want to uh, remind the audience really quickly that what Andy does for his research firm is advising large pools of capital, large institutions, and large money managers, they have to make decisions and asset allocation decisions on a quarterly basis and really on a day-to-day -day basis. And Andy is there to advise them so he can have one take on the market for the next three to six months for his, for his clients and still say that a recession is required and it's likely to come by 2024. So Joe, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, that was, uh, I must say, first things first, that was a soundbite for the centuries. A recession is not desired, it's required. Uh, and I think seeing just how, uh, just how savvy many businesses were and really pushing out those maturity walls, it, you know, it, uh, in, in lowering that rate at which they could borrow, it seems that, you know, uh, the, the Fed really does have the leeway to, to, to remain higher for longer before it, it really impacts the economy. And you've brought up several uh, tremendous points that iterate that. Uh, I think we'll we'll close out by uh, talking a little bit more about that. But first, I'd like to ask you, you had a tremendous thread regarding the action in bill yields uh, and how it, it doesn't point to a collateral shortage like many people have, have posited, but rather just event risk associated with the debt ceiling that's coming up here on June 1st. So I'll ask you, uh, in, you know, so, to sort of explain to the viewers at home, why are uh, you know, front-end yields one month and now three months acting the way that they are in advance of the debt ceiling? Right. So... Um... The debt ceiling, sorry, the um, increase in the debt ceiling is something that is required for the uh, U.S. government to pay its bills, to keep its national parks open, to pay non-essential workers, and also to pay uh, Social Security, Medicare, uh, and all of the military expenditures all of the things that we spend money on, as well as interest in principle. Um, and we run a deficit, and so we need to issue more to maintain uh, our spending. And we're about to run out of money. And that has implications practically in terms of what the 
um, the government will do in 2013 they, uh, when they ran out of money, which could be in June, but will certainly be in by the end of July. Um, and there's some technicals there we can go into if you want. Um, but in at some point, they'll run out of money. And when they do, they will uh, begin by closing our national parks. They'll chain, chain up the uh, Smithsonian Institute and other federal buildings, furlough non-essential workers across the entire government, including military. But um, they'll stop printing uh, various financial data um, and they'll continue to pay their interest in principle on, and that'll, that'll give them enough time to continue to pay their interest in principle on their debt uh, and continue to pay the other benefits that are deemed essential. Uh, but then we'll still run out of money. And at that point, uh, the only choice is to default, meaning to either prioritize, which is a constitutional issue, who they pay off, or... Um, or default on all we the government pays, and to be able to predict that um, the consequences of that is um, anybody's bet. It could it would be severe. The question is how severe and what do you own to protect yourself. But coming back to your question, which is at some point, the government may um, delay interest and principal payment for people who they owe. Um, which is, by the way, a default, and so it brings up all the potential consequences. But if you buy a uh, Treasury bill today, uh, tomorrow, actually, the four-week bill will be issued again, and that's been the one that's had the high volatility. About a month ago, it yielded 3%, because it was the only issue by the U.S. government that would definitely mature and give you back your money before the government ran out of money. Anything longer, two-month, three-month bills, um, certainly longer-term bonds, uh, had the risk that you would get delayed in your payment and interest and possibly defaulted on. Um, and that changed about a week or two ago when the June date uh, became was put on the table by both Janet Yellen, uh, which you can take with a grain of salt because of the political reasons, but also the uh, nonpartisan, the bipartisan um, Congressional Budget Office saying that we could run out of money in June. And as soon as that was announced, nobody wants to own anything that's going to um, expire uh, in June because you might not get your money back. And so the um, one month yields went from 3% where you were sure you're going to get your money back to over 5%, close to six, when you're not getting, when you may not get your money back. And the important thing about it is six sounds like a lot, right? But in the case of 3% T-bill rates versus 6% T-bill rates, the difference is um, you get to buy the T-bill at roughly $99.70 for the one-month bill at 3% and $99.50 for the one that yields this massive 6% interest rate, which to me means you're getting $0.20 cents of value because they mature at the par. Um and so there is no yield I would take on a one-month T-bill if I thought the government was going to fault, and certainly not 20 cents worth of extra interest. So I expect as the date becomes even more certain, and today, just now, before this podcast, uh, the Treasury said they're reducing the number of auction, of dollar amount of auctions for the, this one-month bill up significantly by about 40%. And um, they're going to issue, not surprisingly, what are called cash management bills, which mature in seven days to 14 days, because they don't want to pay the high interest. Um, and people will buy these seven day to 14 day stuff because uh, they're going to get their money back. And so that dynamic will play out. And 
you know, it should affect three month bills and it should affect 30 year bills too. But there's nothing quite as sensitive in terms of yield as the shortest maturity. And so that's where you're seeing the biggest impact in yield. Now in price, they're probably discounting the same thing, but a 20, 20 cent discount on a three month bill is a lot less extra yield. So you're gonna see that significant inversion um, as the bill, as the date becomes certain. And that date looks like it could be in June. There's a super interesting technical um, on June 30th, um, the government unlocks an opportunity to stay within the debt ceiling and still issue $131 billion of new bonds, new borrowing. It's called an extraordinary measure. And that one Janet isn't talking about because she's not sure we get there. But if we get there, your July 4th holiday is probably safe. <laughs> and so, Andy, when you talk about the debt ceiling issues, and obviously they will have to increase the debt ceiling in order to stay functioning as a government for throughout the year. But what do you tell your clients around um, whether or not this is going to happen? Because you're you're probably getting the question, are they going to do a partial default, selective default or not? Are they actually going to increase the debt ceiling? And this is one that I've heard. Yeah, but this time around, it's different because the right side of the aisle is digging in their heels in more than they ever have. So what do you actually tell your clients about how this is going to play out? It doesn't get resolved. Right. So I'm not a political expert, but from my personal, my experience run, handling this for a couple of large institutions during the prior gut, debt crisis, I would say that um, the Tea Party in 20 was, which was, um, took office in 2009, was pretty formidable as a opponent to um, the Obama administration. Um, and it was pretty bad going into 20, um, the debt crisis of 2011, and they, they resolved it. And then 2013, it, they actually closed the Smithsonian and put padlocks on Yellowstone and did all those sort of uh, dramatic shows that were actually closing the government for 17 days. And I would expect it to be really ugly. Like I would expect, now let's start with the first thing. It's possible they just punt it for a couple of months. I'm not sure what uh, benefit the um, Biden administration has for kicking it down the road, um, but they may say, you know, we're gonna raise it by a couple hundred billion and um, sequester uh, the form of spending variety of things they did in 20, uh, 2013. That's a possibility. But I think the Biden administration seems to be roiling for a fight and using whatever techniques they have. And I, I think it's going to be ugly. Um, but I don't think the government's going to default. Um, and I think they um, there will be a time where cooler heads will result in um, an agreement uh, before there is default. That doesn't mean that risk assets don't, particularly short-term bills, um, don't um, meaningfully uh, distort as this plays out. So I have a question about yesterday's survey, right? So yesterday we received the senior loan officer uh, opinion survey. You know, we get that uh, a few times each year and it came in and, you know, there was a slight contraction in some areas, but not as severe as uh, the, the failures of the last few months would have suggested. So give us your take on this, right? It's a slowdown, but nothing too catastrophic. Where do you think we're at in the credit cycle right now based on the survey data from yesterday? So, well, the first thing I'd like to say is that the Fed had this report. It's made for them and was released yesterday, but they had it during their central banking meeting and there was unanimous agreement to increase rates by 25 basis points. So I think the newsworthiness of this particular survey is low. And the market, you know, sold off for a split second and then recovered. Um, now, the bigger issue is that uh, the credit um, contraction, which comes from two things, one, the um, major banks, well, all banks, but the major banks in particular have been selling their 
treasury assets, reducing their balance sheet for a while. And uh, private sector credit has been growing at a rate well below GDP, still positive, but well below GDP for a while. And it isn't slowing the economy, which makes me, and you've said it a number of different ways as well, which is whether it's uh, the biggest parts of the economy have already, homeowners have already mortgaged at very low rates and don't have any cliff coming up or Corporates have been um, borrowing, uh, borrowed a lot of term financing uh, during um, the low interest rate period of COVID. There's not a lot of transmission of this credit issue to the economy, while wages uh, have been growing at above, real wages have been growing, and that is supportive to inflation and the economy. And so... The question really is, are we in a credit cycle or not? Um, probably where credit is getting harder to get. And also, by the way, less there's less demand for it, which is an important counterpoint to this, which is if standards get harder, but nobody wanted it in the first place, what did anything happen? So you have to be caught. Um, it's both the supply and demand of credit that needs to be monitored. But by and large, yeah, credit's tightening. But to me, the um, pro the economy is being driven by liquidity and uh, which I've mentioned about reserves and and RRP and um, wages. And so it's not your mother's or your grandfather's or whatever credit cycle. Um, now that could, if we do have a recession, which we will, because as I said, it's. Um, not desired, but it's required. The The outcome is likely to be a bank credit crisis as well as people are unable to pay back their indebtedness. But that's not what's happening today. Fantastic. It's not what ha what's happening today, but it's it's the direction in which we are headed. I have, I have a, one last question regarding this. If we're not there, and I won't ask then when, but you know, when we do sort of reach uh, that point at which uh, businesses begin to deliver, consumers begin to deliver as those maturities hit, and they're not going to consume nearly as much as they were when rates are 5% plus a spread and same deal with businesses. They're not going to you know, uh, pursue as many projects. They're going to downsize. They're going to cost cut. Um, when that does happen, do you think it's going to be as aggressive as the Fed's sort of front end tightening? Uh, the reason I say that is because, like you said, this isn't, this isn't, your, this isn't your grandfather's credit cycle per se. Um, because we saw very, very aggressive front-loaded Fed tightening um, to sort of get out ahead of that inflation and really save face because they were so late to the party. And then we also saw these very, very sudden uh, bank failures. And of course, those were isolated. It was a, a select number of institutions that were not hedging themselves properly. Do you feel that when the deleveraging does come for consumers and businesses, it's going to be equally as aggressive as the contraction we've seen so far? Or do you think it's going to be a modest deleveraging and modest recession that we see? It depends on whether the um, central bank uh, offsets the delevering or if they pause for longer. Um, my view is if they offset it, uh, they will fail. They will succeed in so saving a few um, vulnerable credit risk assets, but they will fail to contain inflation. And so it depends on what they do. But right now, we're nowhere near where that is uh, requires Fed action, uh, which you know makes me think about the idea of a Fed put. Um, and I will say that with um, high grade credit spreads where they are, high yield credit spreads where they are, equity levels where they are, you can't see the Fed put. It, it's so far below or above this level of credit spreads or below the level of equity prices to essentially not exist. It's going to be an interesting year to see how the risk markets test the Fed put. And uh, we, would, we would strongly agree with you, Andy, that where asset prices are today 
there's no even sign of the Fed put level being anywhere within uh, current levels. So we're going to be keeping our eye on that. For our last question of the day, I want you to get technical as you can, please, for our audience on the RRP facility, how that facility is a current drain on liquidity because the usage today is so high, how it can be supportive to liquidity if if the balances decline there, and maybe what your expectations are around this two plus trillion liquidity slosh that is at the RRP. And feel free to 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 get as technical as you want here. Sure. So the RRP is people who want money, uh, sorry, want cash investments and say are saving cash. They're not interested in anything but very short-term interest on that cash. And so they're not dissimilar from deposits and the offsetting bank reserves that the Fed has to, that the Fed, uh, that banks place with the Fed um, both are Fed balance sheet items. And so when um, bank reserves change and when um, RRP changes, sometimes they switch from one to the other and that's less important. But when an aggregate um, bank reserves fall, bank reserves plus RRP fall, that means that uh, those people who are saving are being are choosing to or being forced to buy assets. And so the reason why the RRP and bank reserves fall is uh, because the Fed lets its balance sheet mature. And that is the principal driver of the aggregate change in those two, in those two things. Um, choices between money market funds, stocks, bonds, all those things. Let me just paint a picture. So let's say a guy who has cash wants to um, buy a meme stock. And so one could think this RRP is money on the sidelines to buy a meme stock. So they go and buy it. So somebody sold that. And so now they have cash. Now they have a deposit. And they sold it because they didn't want to own it anymore. And maybe they buy something else. But then that guy has a deposit. The guy that sells it to them has a deposit. And so every voluntary decision to change from a money market return to a to consumption or to an asset purchase has an impact on consumption and asset purchases prices because you have to when you leave a money market fund and decide to buy something else that's a choice that everyone was happy until you made that decision and so for you to do that you're going to squeeze you're going to have to squeeze somebody who wanted the thing a moment ago to sell it to you. And chances are you're going to have to give them a premium. And then that guy's going to say, as I said, then that guy and then the guy he buys the next thing from and the guy he buys the next thing from all are going to end up with cash. And somebody is going to literally be left holding the bag of cash. And guess where they put it? Back into the RRP or the or back in as a bank deposit to the, and those are the only two places where they can really go, um, back as a bank deposit with a, you know, a normal bank. And so the choice of going to, if, if everyone wholesale decided in the RRP to go out and um, can buy burritos, you know, burrito prices would go up a lot, but ultimately the RRP wouldn't change. Um, and similarly, that would happen with asset markets. So it has the potential of igniting inflation in goods and services or igniting inflation in asset prices. If people decide they want to, if animal spirits decide to do it, but somebody ends up long the cash. And so it never really changes. So one of the factors that people pay a lot of attention to is uh, when the RRP changes. And again, I would urge you to think about the, um, the behavior you're looking for is whether animal spirits are being 
are occurring from people who are leaving cash to do something else. And the level is le less important because it tends to be absorbed. Now, sometimes the RRP goes down and that happens when um, the government needs to issue a new bond to pay back for the, the Fed for its uh, maturity in its SOMA, the QE portfolio. And that actually destroys the RRP. It lowers it. And that impulse, in this case, the government has an obligation to pay back the Fed. So it must issue. And the buyer must is, is somebody who says, gosh, you're forcing me to buy. I have to use my cash. I need a higher return. And so that QT-related reduction in RRP and, um, or, or bank reserves um, results in duration supply needing to be absorbed by the market. Um, and also, so that's how that moves. So as long as QT is going on, there's going to be a pressure on RRP to decline, um, RRP plus bank reserves to decline. And that is negative for assets, except if the government that needs to pay back the Fed issues T-bills to do it, the RRP guy says, wait a second, you need me to buy T-bills? That's what I want. I don't need to worry about T-bill demand. And so that has very limited impact on the, um, on the markets. And so it really matters um, what the government uses to pay back the Fed. The longer duration, the riskier the security they sell, the more impact on markets. A fascinating explanation on RRP as a liquidity facility, uh, sorry, as a liquidity slosh pool of capital, but that the movement in and out doesn't have a net effect unless we see quantitative tightening alongside of it. Andy Constant, thank you so much for joining us once again today at the Bitcoin layer for your macro and Fed takes. Please tell our audience where they can find you online. Sure. Um, I have a website, dampspring.com, and I have a, and you can follow me on Twitter at Damped Spring. And Andy has a great Twitter feed. We definitely recommend you guys uh, go follow him. Once again, I'm Nick Batia with Joe Consorti. Thank you for joining us today at the Bitcoin Layer. Thanks for having me. The Bitcoin Layer is sponsored by Foundation Devices. Foundation Devices are the creators of the Passport Bitcoin Hardware Wallet, the Bitcoin Hardware Wallet that you already know how to use. Guys, it's got a gorgeous design. It's got a very sleek interface, very great screen, directional pad that everyone knows how to use. It makes Bitcoin storage easy and accessible to just about everybody. If you've been put off in the past from taking your Bitcoin off exchanges, which we highly advise that you do, your Bitcoin isn't really there. These are fractionally reserved institutions. Look no further. This is extremely simple. Everyone already knows how to use it right out of the box. And better yet, you can get $10 off your purchase when you use code BitcoinLayer at checkout. Go to the BitcoinLayer.com slash foundation to get yours today.